We'll turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 2. We continue, of course, our study of this powerful letter. It's a very practical letter which Paul writes to his fellow worker, Timothy. He's given instructions and encouragement. He writes also not only to Timothy, but to the local church, which is the church at Ephesus. The whole plan is how is Timothy supposed to live and how is the church supposed to function? We've seen some things already. I mean, really some great things. We saw he started off by telling Timothy he had to deal with false teachers, talked about God's grace of putting him in ministry. He told Timothy, and we saw it, it was a big one, who he charged Timothy to to fight the good fight, to stand for Jesus Christ. Last time we saw Paul's instructions concerning prayer, and we find that we're to be men and women who lift up on an ongoing basis our prayers to our great God and Savior. This morning we're going to look at another small section. We're just going a little bit at a time. We'll go faster a little bit later on, but this part has so much in there. It's only that we're going to, we read verses 3, 4, 5, 6, and 7, but the real emphasis is verses 4, 5, and 6. We're going to see that. We'll touch on 7, but get more on that next week as well. But as we look Look at this little section. Three things sort of stand out. One is God's desires, and that is for the salvation of man. And not only their salvation, but we come to the knowledge of the truth. We'll talk more about that, but we see that. The second thing is we'll see God's plans. He has a mediator. The mediator is Jesus Christ. And as we look at that, we'll talk about ransom. We'll talk about substitution. There's some great things there. And then finally, the last section, where we see Paul's responsibility, and that's to proclaim the message. And he talks about being a preacher and being an apostle and being a teacher, and we'll see how that ties together. This passage has so many truths, so many great things that we can make application in our lives so that we can make a difference for Christ. And so my prayer, my dream and goal and as we study and as we do this week after week is that you'll see the truth from God's Word and you'll make application and your life will be changed. Well, as we start, I want to think about something for a minute. You know, there's several ways that you can think about the great truth of salvation in the Bible. I mean, realize when you think about the message of salvation, think about it this way. It is so simple, it is so deep. Think about it, it's so simple. It's so simple that even a child can understand the way of salvation simply by faith in Christ. Because there are people who are five, six, seven, eight years old, they trust in Jesus Christ as Savior. It's that simple. But it is so deep that we will spend the rest of our lives putting it all together, all that's involved in what God has done through Jesus Christ. The whole thing of propitiation and substitution and justification, reconciliation, these are all things that need to be studied and understood. So salvation is simple. It is. Jesus Christ came to the earth, died on the cross, paid for sin, and rose again. Whoever believes in him has eternal life. It's that simple. But it is so deep that we'll spend the rest of our lives when we think about reconciliation and the perfect God bringing sinful man back to himself and substitution and satisfaction, redemption, ransom, all of those different truths. There is so much more there. Well, this morning, as we look at chapter 2, and we're going to highlight verses 4, 5, 6, and 7, we're going to see some of the great truths dealing with substitution and ransom and mediator and all of those kind of things. And we want to put these truths together so that we can continue to grow as believers and we might give thanks to our God for what he has done. Well, let's begin, because Paul gives some instructions to both Timothy and to the local church at Ephesus. That's what we've been seeing. That's why the book was written. You know, when you think about the Bible, I remember when I first became a Christian, I, I didn't realize, I knew that these books had names like Corinthians and Romans and Ephesians and, and all that, but I didn't know what that was. I didn't know that Corinthians was written to the church at Corinth and Romans was written to a church at Rome and Timothy was written to a guy named Timothy. I didn't know all those kind of things. And so we're looking at a letter written by Paul the Apostle to Timothy. Timothy in a church at Ephesus, and so the letter's not only to Timothy, but it's also to that church as well. And we talk about how Timothy's supposed to live, but how the church is supposed to function. As we get into chapter 2, when we saw last time the whole issue of prayer. In fact, those first three or four verses that we looked at last time dealt with prayer. In fact, look at verse 1 of chapter 2. He says, first of all, 
Then I urge that entreaties and prayers and petitions and thanksgiving be made on behalf of all men. What Paul was saying is we ought to be praying. We need to be praying for each other. We're praying for all men. But he used four words for prayer. We saw this last week, but I want to remind you. Four words for prayer. The first one, petition. Now, this is New American Standard. Some of them are a little bit different in King James or NIV. But he uses the words uh, that he says, entreaties, prayers, petitions, and thanksgiving. The very first word meant to pray for yourself. The second word, worship, meant to, to think about God, who he is, and what he's done. The third word meant to pray for someone else, intercession. And the fourth word meant to give thanks or to be thankful for what God has done. And so when we pray, we can pray by asking things for ourselves. We can pray by, by just telling God how great He is. Sometimes we can pray by just uh, uh, lifting up requests for other people. And then sometimes we just thank God. We just thank Him for who He is and what He's done. Prayer is important. And the way He put, wrote this passage, He says that prayer be made behalf on all, of all men. And He meant that we pray for all people. And that was one of the keys. And I think that's one of the weaknesses in the local church is that we don't pray very much. It's, the, it's much easier to listen to messages. It's much easier to do other things. But when we start talking about prayer, prayer is a hard thing to do. Now, prayer is just simply talking to God, but it just takes time and it's hard. And, and you've got to maintain your fellowship with God. And sometimes we'd rather do anything else sometimes than pray. Prayer is very important. We saw last time that he not only talked about praying for all men, but he really got specific and said pray for kings and those in authority. We talked about this last week and said we must be in prayer for those in leadership in our country and in the rest of the world. Because what they do and the decisions that they make affect each one of us. That's why Paul said pray for kings and those in authority so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. We want the government's and the government to help us live in such a way that we have a tranquil and quiet life. We want the leaders to make decisions that don't affect us in a bad way, but will affect us in a good way. So we should be praying for our leaders. He then ended that little part by verse 3 by saying, This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. This is what we should be doing, praying for one another, praying for those in leadership. We actually started verse 4 last week and just talked about it. Verse 4 deals with the fact that God wants people to be saved. It's very powerful. Let me break down the passage for you this morning. We're going to look at 4, 5, 6, and 7 in the details. Verse 4, we're going to review it. We, we talked about it last week, but it's where Paul's desire, or excuse me, God's desire, salvation and growth of people. He desires that people would be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. Very great passage. Then in verses 5 and 6, we see God's plan because Jesus Christ is the mediator in verse 5, and Jesus Christ is the substitute in verse 6. We'll see how that fits together. And then verse 7, we're just going going to touch on it today because next week when we come back together, we'll have more details on verse 7, but we see Paul's responsibility and is the idea of proclaiming the message of Jesus Christ. So there's some great things there. Well, let's start. Let's go back and look at verse 4. Verse 3 says this, this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who, and he's talking about God, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now, what is God's desire? It's really two things, and that is for people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth, a twofold aspect that people would have eternal life and they would know the scripture and live by that. Let's talk about, first of all, that, that his desire is for people to be saved. Do you realize he says this? This is God's desire that all men would be saved. Now remember, 
that he wants people to have eternal life. He wants people to have an eternal relationship. When he uses the word saved, a lot of times people use the word saved and they think it's like old-fashioned, like are you saved or have you been saved. But what is saved? Saved means to be saved from separation. We've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. Each one of us in this room, oh God, death. We're supposed to be separated from God forever. That's what's supposed to happen. But God's desire is that we would be saved, saved from separation, that we wouldn't be separated from God forever. So he says, this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved. He wants people to spend eternity with him to be saved from eternal separation. Now, how does he do this? He does it simply by faith. And and he has sent Jesus Christ, who died on the cross, paid for sin and rose again, and whoever will believe in Jesus will have eternal life. They'll be saved forever. It's simply by faith. Now, God does not make people believe. There's some people who teach that he chose certain people and he makes them believe. The Bible doesn't say that. In fact, if he did that, then there wouldn't be any love or choice. He desires for all people to be saved, and he has, he has it where that you can make a decision, a choice to either believe in Jesus Christ as your Savior or not. If he chooses you and makes you believe, there is no love and there is no choice. And we see throughout the Bible, it's whosoever will become, whosoever will believe. And so what does he say? He desires all men to be saved, all people. His desire is that people have eternal life. Now, God doesn't want people to be separated. How did he do this? Well, he sent Jesus Christ to die on the cross, to pay for sin, to rise again, to conquer death. And all who believe in him have eternal life. I hope and pray that every one of you in this room realize that God's desire is that each human being would believe in Jesus Christ for eternal life. And what I hope is this, that if somebody came up to you and said, as as you were leaving, if we were all going out the door, if somebody stopped each one of you and said, let me ask you this question, if you were to die, would you go to heaven? That's like a lot of people use it. I'd say it a better way, maybe a different way. If you were to die, would you have eternal life with Jesus Christ? I hope that every one of you in this room would say, yes, I have eternal life because I have put my trust in Jesus Christ as my Savior. He died on the cross for me and paid for my sins, and I've trusted in Him and Him alone for eternal life. That's the story of the Bible. That's the salvation message. God's desire is that every person would be saved, would not be separated, but have eternal life. So I hope and pray that every one of you in this room, and I know, I know most of you, I know many of you, I know many of you in a personal way. Some I do not know. I hope every one of you have trusted in Christ. So first of all, God's desire is that a person would be saved, that people would be saved. And the second thing is that they would come to a knowledge of the truth. Knowledge of the truth. He wants us not only to know about salvation, but he wants us to know the scripture as well. He wants us to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. He desires that believers, this is after we trust in Christ, that we would be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ and that we would know and apply the word of God. That's why he says his desire is that people be saved and to come to the full knowledge. Literally in the Greek it says the full knowledge of the truth. We'd have an understanding of the truths and the principles of God's Word. I hope and pray that each one of you in this room who know Jesus Christ as Savior, that you are growing in the grace and knowledge of Christ, that you're growing in, in how the Word of God fits together and what you know. Now, how, how can this happen? Well, Second Timothy 2.15 says, Study to show yourself approved to workmen need not be ashamed, handling accurately the Word of God. You're going to have to dig the Scripture. Now, that's one reason we teach it Sunday morning, Sunday nights, Wednesday nights, anytime we can. We teach the Bible so that you can know it. But each one of us is responsible to study the Scripture ourselves so that we can put it together so that we can know it. Psalm 119.11 says, Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against 
God. We put the Word of God in our brains. Psalm 1 says to meditate on the Scripture. 2 Timothy 2, 2 says take what you've been taught, you entrust this to other people who will to teach others. So the whole plan is that we understand the Scripture and grow. God's desire is that you not only that you would come to know Christ as Savior, but that you would grow as a Christian. And a lot of people have it, and they're confused. They think the end of everything is evangelism, that it's salvation. All we want is people to come to know Christ. That's not true. We want to fulfill the Great Commission. The Great Commission, Jesus came out and spoke, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. Go you therefore and make disciples. The Great Commission is to make disciples. It's twofold. It's evangelism and training. It's leading people to Christ. That's evangelism. That's his desire that all would be saved. And then it is training them. That's that they would come to a knowledge, a full knowledge of the truth. God's plan is that people grow in the grace and knowledge as well. So each one of us in this room who know Christ as Savior, we have the great commission to fulfill. And that is to tell people about salvation, about Jesus Christ, so they can trust in Christ because God desires that all would be saved. And then to train them and equip them so they would know the full knowledge of the truth so they would do that as well. Wow, God desires men to be saved and to grow. How did he do this, though? I mean, how did he do this? I mean, because that's the question. How did he do this? Well, he sent his son. In fact, that's the story of the Bible. If you ever realized how the Bible fits together, it's very simple. It's the perfect God brings sinful man back to himself using his son, Jesus Christ. That's the story of the Bible. That's how it fits together. From the very beginning of the Bible, when mankind fell, and God promises a Redeemer all the way to the end of the Bible, to the book of Revelation, and, the, and, and there's the new heavens and the new earth. It all goes back down that God has taken, and here's the perfect God, and he takes sinful man, and he brings us to himself using his son, Jesus Christ. Christ. As we continue, where Paul says, God desires all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth, he then gives us two key things about Jesus Christ. One is that Jesus Christ is the mediator, and two, that's in verse 5, and in number 2 is verse 6, Jesus Christ is the substitute. Those are key words. All throughout the Scripture, there are key words that we need to know and understand. Too often, since the Scripture is not taught very much, a lot of people don't know words like propitiation and expiation and justification and sanctification and substitution and ransom and all those kind of words, but they're all throughout the Bible, and you need to know what they mean when we read them so that we can put them together. In verse 5, he says, There is one God and one mediator. That's the mediator. In verse 6, he says, Who gave himself as a ransom for all. That's the substitution. So in verse 5 Jesus is the mediator. In verse 6 Jesus is the substitute. Let's see that. Let's look at first of all the mediator is Jesus Christ. That's verse 5. Look what he says. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men that is the man Christ Jesus. Now he explains something. He says, listen, there's only one God. Now that's, that's, let me tell you something. There's, there's something that you, that you can't comprehend but you can believe. And that is this. There's one God in three persons. There is only one God, but he, he exists in three persons, the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit. You can't comprehend that. You can say, I believe that's true. I just can't comprehend how that can be. But it is true. There is only one God. Now, there's other people who say they, they worship this God or they worship this God. Or you look in the Bible and it'll say they worship the God Molech or they worship the, the God Dagon. Th those weren't real gods. There's only one God. They're false gods. There's, there's, there's only one God of all. And it says there is one God and one mediator 
also between God and men, that is the man Christ Jesus. Now what a mediator is, is the go-between. The one who is equal in both parties. You remember we said there's the perfect God and he wants to bring sinful man back to himself using his son Jesus Christ. His son Jesus is the mediator. He's the one equal in both parties. And we'll talk more about it in just a second. But mankind must have a mediator. See, the problem is we've all sinned and come short of God's glory. We've moved away from God. We're separated from God. We owe God death. There has to be some kind of way for us to get to God. If we said, I'm going to do good works to get to God, I'm going to try to be good, Isaiah 64, 6 says, all the righteousness, all the goodness of man is filthy rags. So if you tried to approach God by being good, which a lot of people do, it's like taking this wheelbarrow and it's full of filthy rags and we come up to God and say, What do you think? I've done that. That's that's pretty good, huh? And what God says is, that's filthy rags. That's not the mediator. That's not the substitute. And see, what we actually realize is that there's only one God and one mediator between God and men, and that is Jesus Christ. We have to have a go-between. In Job chapter 9, verse 33, Job said, I need someone to stand between me and God. Every one of us in this room needs someone to stand between us and God. Because we've all sinned. We can't approach God. But we have to have the mediator. And the mediator is Jesus Christ. I want to read something to you. Don't turn there. Just listen to this. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning about verse well, verse 17 through 21. And 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 21 is the greatest passage in the Scripture dealing with what we call Reconciliation. Reconciliation is the story of the Bible, how God reconciles man to himself using the mediator, Jesus Christ. Listen to this, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we all know verse 17, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creation, old things are passed away, behold, new things are coming, all these things from God, who, and then here's the verse, he says, who reconciled us to himself through Christ. God reconciles us to himself through Jesus Christ. It goes on to say in verse 19, namely, God was using Christ reconciling the world to himself. Now, I want you to understand that the only way to get to God is Jesus Christ. He is the mediator. There is no other mediator. There is no other way to God except Jesus Christ. You can try to approach him on your own, but what you approach him with is filthy rags. We have to have the mediator. And you understand that Jesus said in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father except how? Through me. There's only one way to God, Jesus Christ. There are people out there who say there are a lot of ways to God. There are not many ways to God. There's only one way to God. Jesus Christ said, I'm the way, the truth, the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. Acts chapter 4, verse 12, Peter on the day of Pentecost, or a little bit later on, stood up and said... It said that there's no other name given under heaven among men whereby we might be saved except the name Jesus Christ. There's no other way of salvation. So if in this room you thought, well, I'll try to be good or I'll do this, you're not the Savior. There's only one way to get to God and you have to have the mediator. The mediator is Jesus Christ. He is the Savior. He died for you. He paid for your sins. He gives you eternal life. That's the only way to God. So he says, listen, God desires men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth because there's only one God and only one mediator between God and men, 
and that is the man, Jesus Christ. Now, remember we said that a mediator has to be equal in both parts. And so since you got God and you got man, the mediator has to be the God-man. That's why Jesus Christ left the glories of heaven, who existed as the eternal God, and came to the earth to become a human being. It is called, a theological term called the hypostatic union, which is the union of the deity and the humanity of Jesus Christ. That's why John 1.1 1, 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus Christ is God. It says down in John 1.14 that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. He became a human being. Jesus Christ is both God and man at the same time. We can't comprehend that either because he's not 50% God, 50% man. He's 100% God, 100% man. We go, I don't, that doesn't add up. No, it doesn't add up, but because it's beyond us. We believe it. We just can't comprehend it. And so we have a mediator who fits the bill because he's both God and man. He's the one that can bring sinful man back to the perfect God. That's the mediator. We have to have the mediator, Jesus Christ. What did he do? He died for us. 1 Peter 3.18, Christ died for our sins once for all the just, that's him, for the unjust, that's us, to bring us to God. He did it all. There's only one way to get to God. That's through the mediator. Now, what did the mediator do? Look at the next verse, because he's the substitute. Verse 6, who gave himself as a ransom for all the testimony given at the proper time. He gave himself as a ransom for all people. He died for us. He is the substitute. Now, we know what a substitute is. We know football. We love sports. We watched the game yesterday, and that was a great game. And this next week's going to be a great game, too. And let me tell you, you know about it. If you're in the game and somebody comes in to take your place, they are your what? Your substitute. They come and took your place. Well, we all sinned, and we all go, oh, God, death. And we're supposed to die and be separated. But Jesus Christ says, I will take their place. I will die in their place because the wages of sin is death. Jesus Christ came and died for us. He became our substitute. That's why he says he gave himself as a ransom for all. Now, I want you to think about substitution for just a second because substitution is a key in the Bible. And there's several things I want you to think about. I've got them up here for you. Just think through this with me. First of all, in this substitution, there's the love of God. Because God loved us enough to send His Son to be our substitute. John 3.16, God so loved the world that He gave His Son. He gave His Son to die for us. First John 4.10, in this is love. Not that we love God, but God loved us to, and sent His Son to be the propitiation, satisfactory payment for our sins. So the first aspect is love. Here's the second thing. Second thing is substitution. Romans 5a, God demonstrates his love toward us that while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. There are verses all over the New Testament that talk about how Christ died in our place. 2 Corinthians 5.21, for God hath made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. Over and over throughout the Bible. He took our place. The third thing is the ransom idea. And it's found in this passage where it says that he is a ransom for all. The ransom means to pay a price. It means to pay a price. It means to purchase something. The, the word ransom deals with a payment. And the payment was the blood of Jesus Christ. First Peter 1.18, we're not redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. Christ shed his blood, dying for us, paying the penalty. That was the ransom. Jesus Christ came, Mark chapter 10, verse 45, for the Son of Man did not come to be, to, uh, to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom. The fourth great truth 
is that God accepted the payment. 1 John 2, 2, He is the satisfactory payment for our sins. Now, you know, if you brought the filthy rags to God and said, what do you think? He will not accept that payment. He's already got a payment. Jesus Christ has already died for you on the cross. He's already paid for your sins. And God has accepted that payment. That's why 1 John 2, 2 says, He is the satisfactory payment, not for our sins only, but for the sins of the entire world. Your sins are already paid for. That takes us to the last thing. And that's for, He did it for every person. He says, He gave Himself as a ransom for all. That means all people. He's a satisfactory payment not for our sins only, but for the sins of the entire world. When Jesus Christ died on the cross, He paid for the sins of every person. Why? Because He desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. So what do we see? We see that Jesus, that God desires people to be saved. He's got a mediator. There's only one mediator between God and men. is Jesus Christ. And what did Jesus do? He came and became our substitute and paid the penalty, the ransom price for all. It's so powerful. He came to die. He did it all for us. He is our substitute, our ransom. He did it all. Now let me ask you a question. I heard this a long time ago and I thought it was pretty neat. It says, God is satisfied with Jesus Christ. The question is, are you satisfied with Jesus Christ? What are you looking to to get to God? See, Jesus, he's, he's it. I'm satisfied with Christ. Jesus died for me. I'm saying to God, thank you. Thank you for sending Jesus. Thank you for taking Jesus as the payment. I trust in Jesus Christ. He gives me eternal life. Thank you. I'm satisfied with all that. There's not one thing I can do or I'm going to ever try to do to get to God. I hope you're satisfied with Christ and Him alone. There are a lot of people I talk to every day and they're thinking they've got to be good or do something or walk down an aisle or give their life or be willing to do this or be willing to do this. They don't understand that Jesus is the one that satisfies God, not you. You are not the Savior. You are not the substitute. You are not the ransom. You are not the mediator. Jesus Christ is. He is the one that gives you eternal life. You do not earn eternal life. You take the gift of eternal life. It is so beautiful. Isn't that the greatest truth of all? We ought to be going, standing up going, hey, let's keep going over this. This is the greatest stuff ever. Now we end this, and I'm going to go fast through this last little part because we see we've got this mediator. I'm going to close it out with verse 7. This Paul talks about his responsibility. We'll touch on it very quickly, and we'll get into the details next week. Notice verse 7. He says, For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle, I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying, as a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. He actually says he was appointed three things. And look what they are. Preacher, apostle, and teacher. Now, let me explain something to you. Because the word preacher doesn't mean like a person that you see behind a pulpit. Like you think of a preacher who gives sermons and things like that. The word preacher means a herald. It means to announce a message. And all of us in this room, when we, when we tell people about Jesus Christ, we are announcing a good news message. And so in a sense, we're all preachers in that sense, or we're all heralds in that same way. So as Paul says that he was a preacher, he also says that he was an apostle. Now, apostle means one sent forth with authority. 
there were just a very few apostles. They had the same authority as Jesus Christ. They got direct revelation from God. They wrote down the New Testament, and they were the authority after Jesus went back to heaven. There are no apostles today. None of us in this room are apostles. Now, what we are is ambassadors. We represent Jesus Christ. We don't have the same authority as an apostle had. We have the authority of the Scripture. And so as Paul says, he was a preacher, and we are announcers as well. As Paul said he was an apostle, we're not apostles, but we're ambassadors. The third part is a teacher. And the word teacher there means the one who communicates information to others. Sometimes when we think of teaching, you think of somebody with the gift of teaching. Very few of us have the gift of teaching. It's just, you know, it's not that many people have that gift. But what this means is we're to communicate this. Now, when I have membership training, we had one not just, just a few weeks ago. I always ask these questions to all the people in membership training. I ask this. How many of you believe it is your responsibility to share your faith? Every hand goes up. Then I ask them this. How many of you believe it is your responsibility to teach other people the Bible? Very few hands go up. You understand you have the same responsibility to teach people the Bible as you do to share your faith. Because we're making disciples, remember? Leading people to Christ, training them and equipping them. God's desire is they know Christ, that they be saved, and they come to the knowledge of the truth. You don't have to have the gift of teaching to teach. You have to know truth and communicate it. Paul says that he was appointed as a herald to announce the message, as an apostle to be sent with authority, and as a teacher, teacher of the Gentiles is how he put it in this passage, to communicate the information. For us, making application, every one of us in this room is a herald, a preacher. We, we give out the good news message. Every one of us in this room, we're not apostles, but we are ambassadors. We represent Jesus Christ, and we go out with the authority of the Scripture. And last but not least, we're teachers. We communicate others to others the truths of the Scripture. We have to do that. So there can be no greater privilege than to be God's instrument on this earth, taking the salvation message and teaching people the Scripture as well. It's very, very powerful. We'll see more on that next time. Let me give you some applications, okay? The first one is this. Realize there is one mediator between God and man. That's what it is. There's one mediator. God, in his great love for us, has sent his son, Jesus Christ, who is the mediator. He is the go-between. He matches perfectly because to be the mediator between God and man, you've got to be the God-man, and that's who he is. He's the perfect God who became a human being. Perfect God, perfect man. I want you to understand something, that God desires all people to be saved. That's what this passage says. Now, other people might say something else, but you have to go back to the Scripture. Not a philosophy of ministry, but the Scripture itself. This says He desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. With that idea, the truth is that A, all men need a mediator. All people need a mediator. Every one of us in this room need a mediator. We're not the mediator. We're not the Savior. We're not the go-between. Jesus is the mediator and the go-between. Think of the work of Jesus Christ. He is the mediator and the substitute. He is the one that matches perfectly, the one sent from God, the go-between, but he's also the substitute because he died in our place. Be thankful that you have a substitute because he's the one that died in your place so that you don't have to be separated from God forever. He did it all. He is the Savior. You could put it this way. Jesus Christ sat in your electric chair. He drank your poison. He suffered on your cross because you're supposed to die. 
You're supposed to be separated from God forever. But Jesus did it all. That's why the Bible says that Christ bore in his body our sins when he was on the cross. Fred Smith said this, If Jesus Christ is just an example, nobody really needs him. But if he is indeed the sacrifice, the Savior, the mediator, then everybody needs him. When we go out these doors, you have to realize that everybody that you come in contact with needs to know Jesus Christ as Savior and needs to come to knowledge of the truth, those two things. That's what God desires. People need a mediator. There is only one mediator, Jesus Christ. A man by the name of St. Theodore, this is way back, first century, wrote this. How splendid the cross of Christ, it brings life, not death, light, not darkness, paradise, not its loss. It is the wood on which the Lord, like a great warrior, was wounded in his hands and feet and side, but healed thereby our wounds. A tree had destroyed us, a tree now brings us life. The truth is, it's Jesus Christ who died on that tree who gives you life. Second aspect, let's fulfill our responsibility. We're preachers, ambassadors, and teachers. We'll go more details on this next week. But we have the message, the good news message. We represent Jesus Christ with the scripture, and we get to teach people the truth. Remember what I said a while ago. When we walk out these doors, you're going to come in contact with people, with a whole bunch of people that do not know Jesus Christ as Savior. I hate to say this, but most people that you will deal with do not understand grace. And many people believe that going to heaven is based on something that they do. They've never understood the grace of God. They've never understood that God desires men to be saved. They've never understood about the mediator and the substitute and the ransom. And they've never understood that it's all by faith. You have the privilege of being a preacher, an ambassador, and a teacher. You get to do it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this passage this morning. There's so much in there. and Lord, we realize there's only one mediator between God and man, and that is Jesus Christ. He is our mediator. And so, Lord, we pray for that. We realize that all people need a Savior, need a mediator. Thank you that Jesus came, and he died in our place. He became our substitute. He is the go-between. He fits, matches exactly perfectly. So thank you for that, Lord. And, and Lord, we just realize that uh, we have the greatest privilege of all, and that is being the ones who take the message to this community. We proclaim the message and the authority of the word of God as teachers passing the truth on. May people come to know Jesus as Savior Lord and may they be trained and equipped so they can know the knowledge, the full knowledge of the truth. Thank you Lord. We ask all of this in Jesus name. Amen.